From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While hopes were high that football could end the campaign with some flair in Tallahassee, the Seminoles made a few more plays to break Florida's three-game winning streak in the series and leave the Gators at 6-6 six and six for the regular season. Meanwhile, on the other side of the country, men's basketball shouldered some tough growing pains in the Phil Knight Legacy Tournament. On today's show, we'll gobble up some Thanksgiving leftovers at our roundtable chat with the voice of the Gators' Sean Kelly and FloridaGators.com's senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry, discussing the season-long themes on display in the FSU game, the context around a 500 record in Billy Napier's first year, a looming decision for Anthony Richardson, the challenges faced by Todd Golden's team in Portland, and second chances in sports in the PAT. Then, volleyball outside hitter and Alabama native Merritt Beeson stops by to share the joy from another SEC title, which side of the Iron Bowl she grew up on, and expectations for the start of the NCAA tournament. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable, presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet healthcare destination, with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. We open up our roundtable, as we do all throughout the fall, with some football talk. We have the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly. We've got FloridaGators.com senior writers, Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Uh, And guys, let's talk about what went down in Tallahassee. I guess to some degree a surprise. I mean, Florida was a, a pretty sizable underdog, double digits. As you, if you listen to the people in the desert, something that Sean has introduced me to, and a new way to refer to that. Um, they definitely fought, and it ended up being, I think, a much more a much closer game down the stretch than it looked throughout points in the night. Um, but ultimately, again, came up a little bit short, and it seems like in a lot of ways some of the recurring things that we've talked about that have, have caused us think, to come up with a, a moniker that was this team could beat anybody and they could lose to anybody. And I think when you go six and six, that's pretty reflective of that. Yeah, the record bore out what we thought um, in a lot of ways, and it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. It's a rivalry game that you lose, uh, and there are things that you can put your finger exactly on, just like you have in a lot of their losses this year. Um, and so, you know, you start the month of November with promise, those two straight wins. It's right there in front of you to end up with eight, which I think all of us would qualify as a success. It ends up being a 500 record. You're bowl eligible. Uh, and I think at this point, much as we said the week they became bowl eligible, uh, that the extra practices and that experience of going to the postseason, uh, A, is a reward in some ways for hard work, but more importantly, it is a chance for development. So with that being said, um, it's hard to win football games when you put yourself in a hole. And if you analyze your losses against what's turned out to be quality teams, double-digit deficits to try and come back against are very difficult to do. Uh, it was surprising the way the third quarter played out. And, uh, you know, the inability to complete a pass for 11 straight attempts or a chunk of the clock, however you want to qualify it, uh, is hurtful in your pursuit. So 
in a lot of ways, I also left the game thinking about development and what we wanted out of this season under a first-year head coach. And I look at guys like Austin Barber, and I look at a kid like Trevor Etienne, and then I think about the impact of transfers and what that means in the in the immediacy of the situation, but also down the road. I mean, if Osiris Torrance is an All-American, just take me off this podcast forever. Uh, maybe I shouldn't qualify it like that. But anyway. Do that anyway. <laughs> uh, but certainly Montreal Johnson had an impact. Ricky Pearsall has an impact. And then defensively, Powell Ryland and a few others will will definitely benefit from what turned out to be a 500 campaign that isn't leaving a great taste in anybody's mouths. But I'm also thinking about Napier's first year at Louisiana as well. It's it's almost a mirror image. And, and then we saw what he did after that first full season. So uh, those are just the immediate kind of surface takeaways for me. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was a lot of what Sean said. You know, a 6-6 six and six season at Florida is never something to get too excited about. Let's face it, that's where they were last year at this time. Uh, and I do think they have made progress. So it's not in the record so much. Uh, but I think some of the things that we've seen on the field with the, you know, development of young players, I think with just the stability inside the locker room, uh, team chemistry, I, all those things are very, very important uh, when you're a new coaching staff and you're trying to to build your program. So uh, while the season, you know, regular season ended on a sour note, I do think there's some positives there. And, you know, it, it was one of those games where it just so it just symbolized the season for me. I mean, it's a it's a Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde team in some ways. That's what six and six teams are. Yeah. I've always thought that as someone who covers a team, I'd much rather them be a great team where there's all these great stories or just a really crappy team <laughs> where the stories are also great and you know change coming. The worst thing to do is cover a 500 team because guess what? One week there's hope and the next week they're back to 500. And that's just what this season's been. Uh, but I do think the if you're going to take something out of it, Florida fans out there listen to this and they say, okay, what – well, what is the positive of a six and six season? I think I still think it's because of Billy Napier. I think he's he's the right guy for this job. I've seen too much behind the scenes, but the football he said it the best the other night after the game. The football is not good enough, and it's where they are as a program. And uh, you know, when you're living die by your quarterback like most teams do, Jordan Travis was great for Florida State. Anthony Richardson was great in the first half. But like Sean referenced, 11 straight incompletions. Not many teams are going to be able to survive that, much less one that's, you know, a 6-6 six and six team. So um, now the most important part of the season begins, guys, the offseason, right? I mean, that's what this whole season to me has almost been about, getting to really reload with Billy Napier on the recruiting trail, adding more of his players. Uh, there's going to be a lot of players that we've talked about this year who aren't going to be here next year. So I think the real program for him starts right now. And uh, But that, that's kind of what I take out of that, that uh, Florida State loss. You know, Billy Napier, when he got here last year, he talked about what he called the journey. And that first uh, step of that journey is foundation. And that's where he gets the players all together in the postseason and the offseason workouts and interact. And so um, it's probably – he probably wishes he wasn't starting that part of the phase uh, right now, but um, I, I think I think it's good news. To, uh, I mean, at, like Scott said, at six and six, you're 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 a hamster on a treadmill to some, and we all know that that this team is going to look very different 
this locker room is going to look very different. Let's just say the locker room they arrived in last year, okay, the one in the stadium, and the locker room they're working on, now, they're working out of now in the uh, in, in the new Hebner facility. That's kind of maybe a, a, a maybe kind of a microcosm of how of how different things 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 are going to be. There's a lot of change coming uh, in the in the first start of this so-called journey. They do have a game to play, and 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 let's not forget. And we'll talk about this probably in the coming weeks when we talk about whoever the bowl of opponent is going to be. That's going to be an important game for some people. Going to be an important game for some young guys. It's going to be an important game for some old guys who are not going to play college football or any kind of football anymore. So you never want to sell them short. But there are the the, the roster is going to look different in that game because there's some players who have a future at the next level that'll probably opt out of that game. Uh, that's something obviously we'll talk about down the line. There may be a, a very important name who was among those list of guys that doesn't play in that game. Um, but uh, uh, as go, going back to the Florida State game, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. When I, I'm out in Portland for this basketball game and I don't see a lot of what's going on early on the game, um, I, you know, and I turn the game on, what is it, halftime is 21-14. Uh, Anthony Richardson's numbers uh, look pretty good. Um, that was pretty exciting to be around the Gators at that time out there during, during that thing and say, wow, this, is, this, is, this game's a lot closer than I thought it was. But it did, of course, turn. And it was exciting at the end, and I, I would have bet my life that if uh, the Gators did manage to drive down and score a touchdown, that they were going for two. What do you guys think? Absolutely. I was, that's what we John. were talking about, press bucks. Oh, I, I didn't have any doubt. I mean, yeah. I, I thought it was tailor-made for that. Um, you know, and then hindsight, we all see the picture of the potentially um, flagrant face mask <laughs> on the last yes. play of the game. If they would have gotten yes. to one more play, they might have pulled it off. Um, and, and so – I also think that speaks to where we are in the progress of this program is that not just in the Florida State game when things went horribly south for a stretch or, you know, even the disaster advantage, this team has found a way to, to give themselves a fighting chance most every week. And I think that there is something to say, look, none of us. Even against Georgia. Right, even against right, Georgia. None, yeah. of us, none, none of us who wear orange and blue want to get into a world where, well, we fought hard. That's not where this program was and where it wants to be. Um, but in this process, I think, and compared to where it just was, I think this is a very important thing is to the spirit as to which they play, not just for each other, but for um, the full clock too, the, the, the period of play that's, that's able to you know impact any kind of a game. Uh, and, and just one last disappointing thing too, I thought this team had really turned a corner most of the first half of the schedule, for sure, about being more disciplined with regard to penalties. These two last last losses here had some real penalty problems. Uh, not only too many, but coming at you know critical times too. Uh, and and that's something also that has uh, you know played into the six and six record here in the last month overall. So uh, there you go. You got a little bit more out of me, Adam, and uh, I'm finished now. And let's not forget. I mean, you're to to your last point. Billy Napier said going into the season that's that this is going to be one penalty every every thirty plays. That was the goal. And I I have to go back and and do, and do some addition. Last year it was one penalty every nine and a half plays. And his goal was one penalty. But uh, I, I guarantee that the numbers of the last two weeks, the loss of Vanderbilt and the loss of Florida State, uh, those numbers were much cl- commensurate closer to the uh, to what happened last year than than anywhere near what Billy Napier was anticipating this year. I've got the numbers. I did it after the game because I thought the same thing. 
So those numbers, by the way, uh, the last two games, 18 penalties for 175 yards. And so obviously, it's not just a lot of penalties. They're all almost averaging 10 yards per penalty, and they also came at critical times. So to your point, Sean, I think that maybe is the, is the, the toughest take from it is that an area where there had been so much progress hits a sour note at the end. So I think that that's a really that's, I think, a fair takeaway from it. Um, as you sort of you know try and pack this up, and in terms of the you know competing and being in every game, go figure. The six and six team was in six one score games. The six devilish numbers: six and six, six one score game, uh, two and four record in those one score games. So we talked about it. You know, trying to get to eight, there were lots of chances to get to eight, maybe nine wins, and a few things go wrong here and there, and you know you are where you are. Um, Looking beyond that, you made a mention of this, Chris, which I think is what every fan is wondering right now. Surely there's going to be some attrition from people who uh, you know. Avery Helm announced he's leaving. That's not a huge name. Uh, there's going to be other guys like that that you know aren't going to really jump to the top of the mind for most fans. But obviously the biggest one is Anthony Richardson, waiting to see what he's going to do. Um, and yeah, that obviously is going to have a huge impact on what Florida does in the portal uh, in everything, preparing for for year two. So, you know, we don't know the answer to that right now. But I guess you know, what do you what do you guys think about the position Florida is in, and how important that decision is going to be to the near future? Well, I I think Adam, I mean, that's that's going to be the story of the off season to some degree with this current roster. I mean, without question, you know, we're we're going to talk a lot about the future and recruiting, and that's really where the program is going to be. Uh, redefined by Billy Napier, but in terms of the 2023 team, there's nobody on the roster that could be more important than Anthony Richardson, obviously. Uh, and, you know, you know, the, it's like the I think the media and most fans who are really in the know, I think they're kind of writing him off. Uh, I don't have an answer there as far as which way he's leaning right now. I'm kind of, uh, you know, I, I kind of expect him to probably – turn pro because I know if I was in his shoes, I would probably be turning pro. Uh, but the game is different these days. I mean, Anthony can stay and still use NIL opportunities and and do it a lot different than guys in his shoes five or ten years ago. But anytime you are being mentioned as a potential first-round pick, it's something you have to, to uh, take very seriously, especially the quarterback position because last I checked, a lot of those guys make a lot of money. So, and you know, he's a, he's a he's a great talent. There's no doubt about it. When you do talk to scouts or you read about what they're saying, you know, they talk about the athleticism, they talk about the size, they talk about the speed. But the one thing that you hear over and over and over, man, that guy has unbelievable arm talent. And we saw that against Florida State. I mean, some of those throws that he made to you know those darts to Pearsall on the two long passes. I mean, just beautiful throws. I mean, it got throws a really, really tight spiral 30, 40, 50 yards down the field. And we know he can throw it about 80 if he wants to. So, uh, but then again, we're also talking about 11 straight incompletions, right? So there's a lot of work there. He's going to be a project, but uh, it, it's again, I mean, until we get a definite answer from Anthony, that is going to be the, the hot topic around the Gators as they prepare uh, to find out where they're going to the ballgame. And what about that bowl game, Scott? What what are we hearing? You're, I feel like you're the one who's on top of uh, on, on top of the rumor mill. What are some What are some of the possibilities we're hearing for uh, for the announcement to come on Sunday? Well, I think the I mean the one that I keep hearing eternally are 
externally is you know it seems like the Las Vegas Bowl is a real player. Uh, but you know Florida has some pull on these bowls. We know that. I mean negotiations are happening this week. You know your Birmingham Bowl, Liberty Bowl, Las Vegas Bowl. The two the you know people are still hoping for maybe the what used to be called the Outback Bowl. What's that called now? Rely Rely Quest or something? I yeah, think that's right. Right. Rely Rely people. There's still people who think it'd be great if they could stay in Florida for a bowl game. I personally don't see that happening, but we'll see. Uh, the one matchup that does kind of intrigue me a little bit if they do play UCLA in the Vegas Bowl, Chip Kelly, you know, against the Gators. Uh, a lot of people, there'd be plenty of storylines in that one, but we'll see, Adam. We'll know for sure Sunday. Because because he's on the West Coast, I feel like it doesn't get talked about, but it's kind of crazy that of all the coaches in that cycle, he he's the survivor. And it took him a little while, but he finally got it going. He got his players. He put his system in place. And sure enough, Chip Kelly can win pretty much anywhere. It, I don't know how it went. I think it went under the radar because they lost the first few years. But now they're pretty good. So uh, all of our attention is now very much focused on basketball as they get into some some tougher opponents. And we saw that out in, in Portland in, in the Phil Knight tournament. Uh, and Chris, you know, obviously not the results I think a lot of people are hoping to see. But again, when you're very early into a, a new era you're going to take some knocks and and they certainly did in in the trip out west. They didn't just take a knock. I mean that was a that was a that was the knock of the century. Um it was the worst loss uh since the calendar flipped from the the, the 1900s to the 2000s. Um Florida had not lost a game by that many points since uh 1999 Billy Donovan's uh, first NCAA tournament season when they went to Tennessee and lost by 35 points. Um I mean now it's all about response. I mean what happened out there they're in the game against Xavier. Um, in, a, in a lot of ways, they're kind of dictating the game against Xavier and some really, really uh, mind-numbing kind of plays. Uh, uh, Alex, you know, five days after or almost a, less than a week after Alex Fudge almost tears the basket down against a 7'4 guy in Tallahassee, he strips a 7-foot guy from Xavier and runs down and has a, has a slam dunk to, I think, to take the Gators up by six. He just he, he throws the thing off the rim. They get the rebound, go up court, three point shot. Uh, a couple like I think it was two possessions later. Uh, Riley Kugel, the freshman, who's really struggled to finish around the basket these first, certainly the first five or six games, um, misses a layup, gets a rebound, misses a second layup. Uh, scramble play, transition, three pointer, and the game just changed on a dime like that. And like and Scott, uh, excuse me, Todd Golden said after he just. Some crazy plays like that it seemed like every time something went wrong for us that they were hitting a three on the other end, and that and that was right. And it, in a lot of ways, it was sort of like the 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 Florida Atlantic game in the mad bombing aspect of the opponent. Uh, Florida Atlantic was thirteen to twenty four from three. Xavier was ten to twenty. Um, right now, it's it's a it's Florida is not playing good three point defense. I just looked at it; they're giving up thirty seven point one percent as a team defensively. There's only six power uh, power conference teams in the country that are worse than that. Um, uh, so I mean that. So that that's some stuff that has to get shore, shored up. But what Todd Golden talked about after the West Virginia game, and again the final score was 84 to 55. There really, really wasn't competitive. Although Florida did get the, uh, I think it was um, maybe a 20 some point margin to eight at halftime. Uh, to get like you had a little bit of momentum going in there, and you thought you had some coming out until West Virginia went on a 22 run to basically make it a a, a laugher, 
uh, he just was, wasn't happy with how they competed or fought through adversity in either half. And so that's what uh, practice today was about. That's what the team meetings were about. Um, and that's what the Wednesday night game against uh, Florida A&M uh, will be about. I know this will, this will air after that's done, but um, uh, the, he wants to see a little more oomph, uh, a little more desire when, when things are getting difficult. They got a bad whistle that night. I think Sean will probably agree with me a little bit on some degree. Uh, you know, the, you had both your bigs. You had Jason Jatoba with four fouls and Colin Castro with three fouls in the first half. Uh, the, the Mountaineers were in the bonus in less in just over six minutes. They're in the double bonus in just over seven minutes. Um, but, and, and like Todd told them after the game, let me worry about getting on the officials. Okay. You can't do anything about it. That's what, that's part of his job description is to do that. Uh, you're, and player's job is to play through stuff like that. And they did a horrible job against it, against a very, very, just a, a, Bob Huggins' team, man, they're aggressive, they were physical, they were up their backsides uh, defensively, and the Gators didn't respond well at all. Trey Bonham, a guy who'd been terrific the last three games, 0 of 9 from the floor, I think 0 of 6 from the three-point line. Um, just a, you know, reality check, uh, maybe, but I mean, it's a, it's, it's a bad loss for sure in terms of ego bruising but certainly not something the Gators can't overcome because, my goodness gracious, you look at the schedule, in a week they're playing UConn, which just won the PK Invitational out there uh, in a in dominant fashion, by the way. They got a game against a, a neutral site game against Ohio, a game against uh, Oklahoma up in Charlotte, um, and then the start to the SEC schedule uh, against Auburn, the defending league champs, all in the next month coming up. So, there's not a lot of time to sit around and, and feel sorry for yourself. The Gators got to fix what's ailing them right now. Yeah, sometimes it's uh, an easy game. Sometimes it's a harder game to pick apart. I think Chris just did a great job of analyzing, diagnosing some of those problems. Um, sometimes on, on the easy part is you got to hit shots to win. And in a lot of ways, the first half against Florida State, what we saw against West Virginia, uh, they didn't hit shots. And, and, and a team that is in its infancy right now, their defense can be greatly affected by their inability to score the basketball. You know, a coach will tell you, maybe we can get to playing great defense. That'll fuel good offense. Uh, and things will start to kind of connect and, and be complementary from there. The crazy thing about this team, though, is that, yes, they don't hit shots, had trouble scoring the ball. You're not going to win when Castleton has, you know, single-digit points like he did the other night, certainly Bonham's inefficiency the other night. But this is also a team that, what, went north of 80 against Xavier, albeit they lost. They put a nice total on the board against Oregon State uh, in, in, this, in these last three. And we saw, we saw them score earlier in the homestand, too. So I, I'm not overly concerned that this team can't score because I think they can. They've shown that they can't. Um, but consistency certainly is an issue. And, Chris, I think you'll agree with me. If we take this West Virginia game and maybe even the Kennesaw State game to some extent, um, and certainly, you know, probably so. The Gators have struggled a little bit with teams that want to get up into their jersey and knock them around a little bit. And the first half of the Florida State game. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I find this team to be very athletic, have plenty of length. Um, yeah, can they be more physical? Let's find out. You know, I, I, and better find out quick based on that schedule that Chris just talked about. I kind of, I kind of in a way – feel sorry for Florida A&M and, and should and should feel that way for Stetson too coming up this weekend 
because those are two teams that ought to be bearing the brunt of an angry Florida team or one that's trying to change its identity a little bit with regard to its toughness and physical nature. Moving on to our PAT, the talk of the college football world over the course of the last few days has been about Auburn. We're always talking about Auburn because they're always doing kind of crazy, questionable things. Uh, and of course, they hired Hugh Freeze after they unsuccessfully tried to hire Lane Kiffin quite publicly, as is often the case with these Auburn searches. Um, but it's a weird situation. There's a lot of people at Auburn that are not happy about it. Many of them are among the students. Um, Hugh Freeze has about as much baggage as any major Power 5 coach that's been hired in, in recent memory. Um, but it got me thinking about second chances because that's a big part of what he's saying is, hey, you know, people deserve a second chance. I'm going to do better this time. I don't know if it's going to work, but it got me thinking about other significant figures, whether it's players, coaches that got second chances that seemed unlikely uh, in your in your time covering so many of the sports that you have. Does Nick Saban count? <laughs> uh, I, Why wouldn't he? I guess. I, to me, that'd be the greatest of them all. He leaves college football having won a national championship. It's a disaster in the NFL. He gets a second chance at college football and becomes arguably the greatest coach in the history of the sport. Um, that would qualify for me. Um, does Coach O at LSU qualify? Um, you know, gets, a, gets one more go out as a head coach, ends up <laughs> taking LSU to the top in that situation and then just as quickly came back down. I would love to put Kelvin Sampson in this conversation, but I just have this fundamental problem with a guy that gets multiple programs in trouble and still gets not just a second chance, but a third chance and a fourth chance. Mm. Uh, but he's done well with his, his most recent chance, obviously, with the Houston Cougars. Um, those are some, some of the things that come to mind for me. Uh, I would have to think a little bit harder about players and second chances, uh, but I'm sure I could come up with something. And then as a team, uh, does the, do the Houston Astros – pop into this conversation they win they get buried because they were caught cheating have to start all over again and then end up winning it all in a different way under dusty a plethora of good answers there from sean he came right out and just uh he took a lot of the bullets right out there i'm not sure what's left <laughs> for for these guys to to feast on well i i was being in portland this past weekend uh i had the pleasure of being in a news conference with Sean Miller of the the coach at Xavier. I mean, here's a guy who, who, I mean, it, it was all on tape that the FBI had and he got run out of Arizona in disgrace and ends up, you know, with a pretty damn good job back at Xavier, a place that got, that he did so well at before that he got the Arizona job. And not only that, he walked into a damn good basketball program. So uh, he's kind of li living the life of Riley uh, out out that way. I mean, so there's, there's, I mean, Bruce Pearl. You can talk about the same yeah, way. Uh, Bruce sure. Pearl. Bruce Pearl did his penance. He sat out. He did his ESPN thing, which I thought he was really, really good at. Um, and he he kind of went through that stuff and goes to Auburn, which really had never had any basketball uh, relevance, with, with the exception of you know uh, Charles Barkley and a, and a couple of really good players and maybe a couple pockets of some good years here and there. And they win their first conference championship uh, last year. So, I mean, he's he's a perfect example of someone like that. When I think of athletes um, over the time, I, I mean, 
I'm old enough to remember uh, Muhammad Ali winning three championships a second or, or winning the world heavyweight title three different times. And what he had to do to come back beating almost the guys who had beaten before, obviously Joe Frazier and Leon Spinks. But as far as the team, and I, I think there's just two definitive ones, and both of them tie emotionally to me to some degree because there will never, ever, ever, ever be a team that gets the second chance that Florida got in 1996. It just will never happen. To be number one and to lose at Florida State to the number two team, okay, ruin your undefeated season, you got no shot at winning a national championship unless Nebraska loses, defending that, two-time defending national champion, Nebraska loses to a four-loss Texas team. Uh, uh, You beat... Uh, uh, Alabama in the SEC championship game the next week after the most devastating loss of your careers, this collective group of guys. And uh, the day before you're playing in the Sugar Bowl rematch against FSU, uh, 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 Ohio State upsets unbeaten Arizona State. All those three things have to happen. Plus you have to get the rematch with FSU to begin with, which they did. And they go and they beat the hell out of Florida State in New Orleans. So uh, that's the kind of stuff that that you know, like when, that's when Steve Spurrier first said God was smiling on the Gators, and they were. And to me, that that's the definitive things happen to give you a second chance in terms of making things happen to give you a second chance. And I'll go back to this. And again, this is I was involved in this because I had a kid there. But to be UVA lose to Maryland, Baltimore County to, as a number one seed, and the next year to be a number one seed and win the whole thing with basically the same team, good for them. And the class that they handled, the, the worst loss and one of the worst losses in the history of sports, and to celebrate it a year later, um, those to me are two definitive things really, 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 really hard to beat. I know my answer was even was longer than Sean's, and I apologize that, but those things really stick in my head. Um, okay, Scott, the bar. The bar is very high. Well, I was waiting to see if either guy said that Gators team in 96, because that's the ultimate for this podcast. Um but you know what? I think the premise of your question, really, Adam, is about a guy who obviously had some issues uh, in his personal life that spoiled his coaching career when Hugh Freeze was at Ole Miss. And you know, he's paid what five years or whatever it's been, landed at Liberty. A guy I think of, I remember Mike Price, the guy who got Alabama. He was the head coach. He never coached the game because he went to a strip club and <laughs> supposedly. According to Sports Illustrated, has some uh, late night shenanigans where he said "roll tide." One of the great stories <laughs> ever in history. But he uh, disappeared for a while, but he resurfaced at UTEP and coached another eight, nine, ten years. Did he really? Uh, yeah. So I mean, there's huh. been stories like Q Freeze. I even think of a guy like Lane Kiffin. I mean, Lane Kiffin's had a lot of uh, issues. Maybe not necessarily to Hugh Freeze's degree, but he seems to have grown up and. You know, doing a good job at Ole Miss, obviously. So you either like him or you don't, but that's just the truth. But, but also, just second chances mean a lot of things in in today's society. Unfortunately, I think we, some people get third and fourth chances. But I'll stick with the one really good second chance story that's always stuck with me because I was around him a lot when he first started his career. Was Josh Hamilton, the baseball player? Mm-hmm. And you, Josh was instantly likable. Uh, but, you know, he disappeared one spring training and we knew something was really wrong and it was really wrong. You know, he ended up being addicted to cocaine and crack and just lost his way. But he made his way back and in 2008 won the MVP. So 
those are the kind of second chance stories I prefer over ones like Hugh Freeze or Mike Tyson, or you could just go down the list. I mean, how many, you know, third and fourth chances, like I said, but uh, yeah, so those are a couple that stick out in my mind. I do like everybody sort of made this their own. Everybody interpreted it in the, in the way that, that they saw fit and brought really good answers to the table. So we appreciate that. We also appreciate all the work you guys do to keep bringing Gator content to the people, which you will keep on doing despite the fact that football regular season is over, especially over at FloridaGators.com. Guys, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Adam. Sometimes a team wins so often that it's easy to forget how monumental their accomplishments are. But this past weekend, it simply can't be ignored that volleyball won its 25th SEC title in program history, the third most crowns claimed by any sport in the league over the last 45 years. One of the keys to Mary Wise's latest championship squad is Merritt Beeson, with the sophomore being among the three Gators named All-SEC this week. We spoke to Beeson about the team's success and her own journey, beginning with what it was like on the court when the latest title was clinched on Saturday in Oxford. First day we played Ole Miss, we swept them. We were feeling super good going into the second day. Second day, they gave us their absolute best shot. So it was a fight. It was a five-setter. We were up 2-0. They came back and won the third and fourth set. Um, and so going into the fifth, there was definitely a lot of pressure on us. You know, it was we win that set or we don't share the SEC title. So it was definitely a lot of pressure. But I think what changed for us between – the third and the fourth set and then the fifth set was kind of just accepting that pressure you know we talk about it all the time Mary says all the time pressure is a privilege and so I think our mind shift into the fifth set was just like it's do or die right now like we Mm -hmm. have to win this set or we don't share so it was a dog fight the whole match but I think the fifth set we kind of took back control and then ultimately that last point I looked at Stucky and I was like you better set me this ball (laughs) and she, she listened and Oh, it was just awesome. Um, I have no idea where the ball went off the block. I have no idea. I just knew it went out of bounds and just immediately turned back to my teammates. And it's just such a special feeling. And I know for someone like me who growing up club in high school, I was never at like a strong program or a strong high school. So like I never had the opportunity to win like AAUs or a state championship or anything like that. So I know for me, like it was so special just because that's the second time that I've won a championship of really any sort. Um, So it's insane. And just being able to do it with your teammates and we've worked so hard and this team is such a tight knit team that it was so special just to be able to do that, like for each other and with each other, just because we have worked so hard and we have had to grow a ton throughout the season being so young that it was just so special. That's the best way I can describe it. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned the you know, back-to-back days, and that's one of the things that's changed because of COVID that actually stuck was instead of you know going, doing a home against them, and then you travel there three weeks later, it's just like boom, 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 you play them back-to-back, and then you move on from it. What What's that dynamic been like? Because it, it does seem like it's challenging to you know have almost an immediate rematch where a team can take everything they learned about you yesterday and then apply it against you the next day. Yes, it is definitely challenging. And it's really hard coming back the next day um, and playing the same team. Like you said, there are advantages to it. 
um, because ultimately in the NCAA tournament, like you're playing back to back, you're not playing the same team, but you Mm -hmm. are playing back to back days. And so us being one of the few conferences that does that, it does prepare us because most conferences play like Friday, Sunday. And like you said, like they'll travel in between. Um, And I think we might be the only conference that does actual back to back days as far as I know. And so, yes, it is very challenging (laughs) and you learn a lot from it, but it is preparing us. So the bodies don't necessarily like back to back days, (laughs) but it is preparing us for the tournament. So, I mean, there's good and bad. It just depends on the way you look at it, but it is challenging. That's for sure. Yeah. And we'll we'll talk about the tournament in a second. But before we do that, I want to turn the clock back for you a little bit. Um, Can you take us to the beginning? Tell us about your family, where you grew up and some of those early years. Yeah, so I grew up in a small town north of Birmingham, Alabama. So I'm about 10 miles away from Birmingham in a small town called Gardendale. And I've lived there my entire life. Both my parents actually graduated from the high school that I went to. So our entire family is there. Both my grandparents live there. One of my grandparents lives like 30 minutes away. So most of my family is in Gardendale, Um I grew up a gymnast, so I did gymnastics from about K-4, K-5 up until fifth grade, um, into fifth grade, going into sixth grade. And then they couldn't raise the bar any higher. And I was like, this is (laughs) not the sport for me. Um, But I love gymnastics. I just obviously outgrew it. And so when I quit gymnastics, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I loved floor and the tumbling aspect of gymnastics. So I almost became a cheerleader (laughs) because at the time we didn't know that volleyball was a thing. Volleyball is not a big part of Alabama sports whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Everything is football. So cheerleading goes along with football. So little girls just want to be cheerleaders and gymnastics and softball are pretty big, but we didn't even know that you could play volleyball at such a young age. Um, And one of my far family friends, like very distant, (laughs) her mom had posted on Facebook that her daughter was going to like just a little volleyball class. And my mom was like, what? Like, (laughs) you're able to do that at this age? And Um, I ended up going and started playing at that club. And so that was in sixth grade. And so I played at the same club from sixth grade all the way up until I graduated early. Um, So seventh grade, tried out for the middle school team, made the middle school team. So I played for my school team up until 10th grade. And 10th grade, I decided that since volleyball is not a big thing in Alabama, and high school volleyball in Alabama is not very strong, um, especially at my school, I decided that it was better for me in my goals of wanting to go play collegiately that I needed to just train with my club. So I ended up not playing in 10th grade, trained with my club year round and did online school actually to just kind of get to where I needed to be. Um, so didn't play 10th grade year. I had to make the tough decision 11th grade if I was going to go back and play school ball um, or not. And then I decided that I wanted to change the stigmatism around volleyball in Alabama and especially in my small town where, like I said, everyone wants to be a cheerleader because football is such a big thing. Um, and so I went back and played school ball and I made that my goal. Um, no matter what it looked like, I just wanted to have fun and I wanted little girls to be able to look at me and be like, whoa, I can play volleyball and I can get to the next level. And so made that my goal, started like giving privates to little girls in my basement driveway, like just doing lessons, doing whatever I could. I would volunteer with the middle school team during the summer and help coach them during the summer. 
Um, and then ultimately started doing camps once I got to college. So I will go back home, run camps out of my high school gym. So that's kind of my story. So you, you talked about when you're in Alabama, football is football is king, right? As I understand it, every family uh, is a designated Auburn or Alabama household, regardless of if they went there or have anybody. It's just like you have to choose uh, which side of the Iron Bowl did, did your family fall? My dad went to Bama, so okay. we we pretty are, simple then, right? <laughs> yeah, we uh, most of my even my extended family, most of us are Alabama fans. There's a few Auburn fans sprinkled in, but yep, grew up an Alabama fan. <laughs> mm. So okay, so we've established that you know you went all in on volleyball. You said it's gonna be my goal to get to the next level doing this. How does Florida come into the picture and, and how does a girl from small town Alabama make the decision to to come to Gainesville? Yeah, so me and Gabby on the team actually have played together since we were like 13, 14. Um, we've been on the same team since middle school. And I grew pretty late. So I was always tall, but I was never like 6'3", really tall. I was always taller. But so freshman year of high school, I was 5'10", which a 5'10 outside is like not crazy tall, crazy big, would be considered an undersized outside. Um, And Gabby was the opposite. So Gabby grew really early. And so she was like 6'3 already. So Gabby honestly was the magnet for all these. (laughs) So everyone came to watch Gabby. um, And luckily, I just happened to get looks from Gabby, honestly. Um, And so Florida had been recruiting Gabby for a little while. And I knew that Florida was where I wanted to go. Um, But they never recruited me freshman year. I was 5'10", didn't have the skills to go there yet. Whatever. Cool. Um, So sophomore year, when I didn't play school ball, my club coach kept just being like, wait till you can go on a visit to Florida. Wait till you can go on a visit to Florida. And I was like, Florida hasn't even sent me a camp invitation. (laughs) I'm not going to Florida. Uh, But she was like, just wait, just wait, just wait. And I was like, okay. Like I have no idea what in my body made me trust her because like I said, like there had not even been a camp invitation. I was like, they've been watching Gabby. Like they've seen me. Like if they wanted me, they would have let me know, you know, that's right. Um, And so sophomore year, skill wise grew a lot grew a lot physically so i was like six two six three at this point um one of the first tournaments i think it was in like february dave our assistant coach came and he was like oh shoot and so then after that it just happened in like two weeks like mm. mary called me mary flew to alabama to watch one of our practices offered me and this was right before the rule change um it was like I either went on a visit in like a week or I wasn't going to be able to talk to them for like three months. Wow. So me and my family like drove down to Florida and um, I did an academic visit. I couldn't even do like a, a volleyball visit. I just literally was on the tour with like the n- normal kids walking around campus and looking at campus. Like <laughs> and that was my visit. And I was like, okay. And then I committed outside of Moe's here in Gainesville. So wow, okay. it happened very, very, very fast. So many of life's biggest moments happen outside Moe's. So I understand this. <laughs> exactly. I, I definitely understand this. Uh, 
you strike me as someone who probably has a lot of interests outside of volleyball, though I doubt there's a lot of time to get to many of those things. But let's take let's take volleyball out of the equation. We're taking school out as well. No volleyball, okay. no school to worry about because I know that you're you're an academic star as well. What are what are your favorite things to do when you have free time? Hmm. I like shopping okay. a lot. Online or you or do you like the in-person shopping experience? Both. Okay. Both mix. for sure. I don't have a favorite. Depends on the mood for that day. Um, <laughs> Am I into clicking or walking? It depends, yes, right? Exactly. Yeah. I'm a big shoe girl, so clothes, shopping, all of that ties together, which is not good for my bank account, but that's okay. <laughs> um, I also like hanging out with my friends and my family, um, watching movies, TV shows, Netflix, big Netflix girl. Um, I am a Christian, so church small group, those sorts of things are also a big part of my life. Um, and I love kids. <laughs> I love kids. So if there's any way that I can get involved with kids, volunteering, whatever it may be, I'm going to do it because I love kids. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I saw in, in reading about you that you've been involved with a lot of organizations that do give back like so many Gators are. What are some of your, your favorite organizations to work with and, and causes that you're most passionate about? I wouldn't say that I necessarily have like specific organizations, just like I said, just like literally anything that I can find that I can do, I'm going to be there. So I wouldn't say that there's like one that I'm most passionate about, just finding, even if it's a little way, like finding little ways that I can give back to the community. Um, I just love doing things like that. And especially when it involves kids, I love it even more. Um, So I would say definitely like, Kids in general, special needs, anything like that, um, I definitely like have a heart for more. Not that I don't have a heart for other things as well, but those are definitely the things that like strike me the most are kids, special needs, whether it's going to a hospital, like kids in need, um, kids in poverty, whatever it may be, like anything that I can do. If it's just simply like getting cans together to go take to a school or getting some shoes or going to read to a classroom. Like it can literally be as simple as that. I love doing those sorts of things. So Hmm. well, bringing things back to volleyball, I know we talked at the, uh, at the start of this about the excitement of winning the SEC and what that means for what's next. And what's next is the NCAA tournament. As you go into this again, trying to, to make that run to a national title how do you feel like the team is at this point? How how ready are you to make that run and, and what's going to be key for it to be successful? Yeah, it's for sure. The team is ready to go and super excited. Um, I know Mary and the whole team talks a lot about like us being such a young team. And I think that building confidence off of SEC and off of that win is a big part of us going into the tournament. Um Ultimately, in the tournament, like, there are tons of upsets. People that you don't think are going to win are going to win. The tournament is a lot majority based on the teams that have the best chemistry and the teams that have the most confidence. No matter what the skill level is, those are normally the teams that succeed. So going into it, building confidence off of SEC, but also, like, we fought for that SEC championship. It wasn't just handed to us. I think that's building a lot of confidence for us right now. And then just continuing to blend together and to mend as a team is definitely a big part of our goal. We know that like when we play free and when we play together is when we play our our best volleyball. So 
us continuing to improve that and to grow that is honestly like our main focus right now. Um, but also going into each game, taking everyone seriously. Like I said, like everyone's going to give us their best shot. So going one game at a time, taking that opponent seriously um, and not looking ahead is definitely also something that we're really focusing on. So our main focus right now is FAMU on Friday um, and we have to go in there and we have to handle our business and then we'll move on to the next one. Um, but just making sure that we're taking each team seriously and focusing on that team and handling our business for that day um, is definitely something that we're trying to trying to keep our focus maintained on because it is it's so easy to like look ahead mm -hmm. and get caught up in what's next or who's next or what's happening over there it's so easy um so we're just trying to focus on our game that's in front of us and take it one step at a time well Merrick, good luck with that first step this week and uh we thank you so much for spending some time with us today yeah thank you and that's gonna do it for this week's show if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.